We just read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. So that's where we were. We're actually going to be in 1 Peter 2 this morning. Uh, you can open your Bibles there if you have your apps. Uh, uh, we're actually going to be focusing on verses 9 and 10. If we have any kids with us, you guys are dismissed to the back of the sanctuary, and we're going to send you guys up to children's ministry. So uh, very, very good. So I have a personal value of mine, uh, something that I like to do, something that I like to focus on. I want to be a student of culture. I want to understand culture really, really well. It's my goal to try to see how cultures function, how society functions. And so I actually like have a high value for sociology. Now, uh, the reason I have a high value for sociology is not because of the particular philosophies that get spread within the sphere of sociology, but because sociology helps me to understand how the society that we live in functions. And if I can understand how it functions, then, uh, then it's helpful for me to know, like, what does it mean to, to reach this place that I live in and uh, reach these people? And so, uh, so a unique cultural reality that I have observed that may not necessarily be universally true, but nonetheless is existent within our culture, is that we lack value for places and spaces, we lack value for places and spaces. Now, now, what do I mean by that? And I might say some things, and you might go, well, I don't lack value for those things. And I hear you. I'm just trying to, to observe like a unique cultural reality that can be uh, usually observed in a few different areas. So what do I mean by that? We live in a society that is driven by achievement and accomplishment. And in a society that is driven by achievement and accomplishment, the, the value of a place or a space is determined by the thing that it precedes. Because in a culture that values achievement and accomplishment, you are always focused on what comes next. You are always focused on the next thing. So the value of the present is that it prepares you for what is in front of you. So every space that you inhabit becomes significant only because it leads you to the next space, only because of what's coming next. And so, uh, so how is this illustrated? Well, uh, we have a progression that in order to become a contributing member of society in America, you go to elementary school. And elementary school prepares you for middle school. And then middle school prepares you for high school. And you would think you would stop in high school, but my thought was, and what I was convinced of, is that like, I pretty much have to go to college after high school. And so high school was preparing me for college. I was focused on the next thing. And college doesn't just stop for itself, but college's goal is to educate you for entering the workforce, right? So you go and you get your first job. And you know what? Your first job... Its, its value is dependent on the next thing that it leads you to. Uh, many people in their first job, they're either focusing on a promotion or they're focusing on the kind of experience that they can gain for their next job. And then in your second job, you're probably preparing for a chance at leadership in the organization that you work in, right? Like this is a pretty common progression that you can observe in society. And each of those spaces intentionally force you to look ahead to the next space, to what's coming next. Another example of this. The, the spaces that we actually call home, the spaces that we live in. So like, uh, you, maybe you start living with mom and dad, right? You start living there. 
but like one day, maybe it's when you turn 18 years old, maybe it's after that, who knows, but like one day, mom and dad, they want to give you the boot. They want to send you somewhere, right? They want to get you living in your own space, right? So, so maybe the, the, you focus on, okay, maybe I have to get an apartment now. But then while you're in the apartment, you're like, but I still have to try to save money because I want to own a house, and, uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to focus on that. So I'm focused now, while I'm in the apartment, I'm also thinking about, okay, what's the future home that I'm going to buy? Because the apartment is almost never your forever space that you plan on staying in. But then even after you buy the home, maybe you bought a townhome, and so, so you're there in the townhome, and you're thinking, okay, but this isn't for my forever home because eventually I'm going to upgrade again, right? Maybe I'm going to move to a single-family home, right? Uh, so, and this is the way that even I noticed that, that Andrea and I were thinking when we bought our first house is, oh, we'll probably own this for about five years and then we'll upgrade, right? Like that's kind of just the pattern that exists in our society. It's what everybody does, so why wouldn't we do it? And so the problem is that every space has far more potential than we give it credit for because if we're too focused on what comes next, we forsake the work that God wants to do right here and right now. If we're focused on what's coming ahead, what the next step is, we actually devalue the potential work that God wants to do in the space that we're in right now. So let's talk about our spaces. When we normally think of the word space, we think of physical location. Uh, and so it, it, literally, that's what the word means. It's referring to physical space. But the word space is actually more and more being used to refer to a relational concept, and I will use a word that so many people, I'm sure, in this room love. Think of the word safe spaces. We want to create safe spaces, right? We're not actually talking about a physical location, usually, when we're using that word. We're talking about a relational context. We're talking about the ways that people talk to each other and the language that they use, because uh, there are certain people that want to insist that, that language should be safe right? Uh, language should be protective of everybody and that kind of stuff. So, so that's what safe spaces refers to. So it's more about kind of emotional safety than it is really about the safety of a physical place. So uh, this is the kind of idea that I'm using when I'm talking about spaces. And so, so your spaces could be broadly defined as the relational contexts that you inhabit. Your spaces are the relational contexts that you inhabit. These are the places where you relate to other people. They're not necessarily required to be a physical space because um, there, certain spaces can give you access to further relationships, right? So I'm thinking of spaces in terms of the relationships that are contained in those spaces. So any segment of your life that gives you the opportunity to genuinely connect with people I am considering to be a space. So we can actually like order our spaces a little bit. So first spaces, as we think about spaces and the people they give us access to, first spaces are the relational contexts that you all call home, that we call home. So yes, does that start with our house? Yeah, and then it moves out to our family, like we have our family in our house. But uh, on top of that, like, uh, in my home, my first space, I have a bunch of family members that I relate to who don't physically live with me, um, right? So I have my mom's like family and extended family. We do a Zoom call every now and then together. Um, I have uh, just like my 
parents and my brother and, and his family, uh, they're involved in that first space. But then on top of that, then I do have like my physical home, which happens to be in the middle of a neighborhood. So I live like in the middle of a bunch of people that surround me. So that all of those relationships that would be involved, those relationships are all attached to my first space. What about second spaces? Second spaces are the relational contexts where you work. So, so maybe you, uh, you work in the home, you're a stay-at-home mom or something like that, then your, your first space and your second space will be uh, very similar. But, but many of you work in context. You, you actually go somewhere to work. And, and that work gives you access to relationships that you don't have in other parts of your life. And so, uh, so these are the, 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 the camaraderie, the people that you work together with, that kind of stuff. That's your second spaces. And then third spaces... Third spaces are shared relational contexts that anchor community life. So uh, these are places like coffee shops, uh, places like restaurants, uh, places where you can go and you can actually build relationship with people. This also, by the way, if you're involved in any kind of extracurricular activity, uh, so Tommy, you do MMA, right? Like that's a, that, I mean, that's part of your job too. So that's your second space, but also there's a third space for many other people in your life. Uh, I know like the D'Amelios, you all are involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, right? That is a significant third space where you're interacting with other people. And these places become anchors for community life. So, so the kinds of spaces, the kinds of relational contexts that exist are vast, like there's a a significant number of them. So remember, spaces are defined by the groups of people which make them up, and each of those different spaces contains different groups of people. So you may hear me, when I preach, you actually may hear me say often or refer to often your spheres of influence. And when I talk about your spheres of influence, I actually am very intentionally and clearly thinking about these three spaces. These three spaces, because they all give you access to different kinds of relationships. This is what I'm talking about. So, that's spaces. I have two questions this morning as we move forward. My first question is this. Um, I want to talk about why do spaces matter? Why are spaces important? And then number two, if they really do matter what do we do with them? If our spaces really do matter, what do we do with them? Okay, so we're in this uh, series. We've been going through it. It's called Connect With, the whole goal being, how do we get us connected to Jesus and Jesus connected to our neighbors and us connected to our neighbors? This idea that, that we want to see our neighbors actually have an encounter with Jesus. And this is not when we say neighbors, we're not just talking about like the people who live next to our home. We're talking about everybody that we might be in relationship with, everybody who would kind of cross our path. So, so we've been working with this kind of flow chart to, to help us see what it means to be faithful when we connect with our neighbors. So here's the flow chart that we've been working with. It starts with hospitality, and then it moves to trust and openness. It moves to our reasons And and then we have to deal with their response, right? Their response could be rejection or repentance, right? So, So in that whole list, there are two things that we can do anything about. And that is our hospitality and our reasons. The reasons that we have for the hope that is within us. Now, we're going to be focusing on those in the coming weeks. But today, I just want to look at 
hospitality, and, and we've been dealing with hospitality. So last week, we asked, like, what are the characteristics of a hospitable person? What makes up a hospitable person, and how will the Holy Spirit work inside of us to bring those characteristics about? This week, I want to think really intentionally about where it is that we should be practicing hospitality, because we typically think of hospitality in our homes, how we use our homes, what we do with our homes. But the crazy thing is, is that Jesus Christ is the most hospitable person who has ever lived, and he did not have a place to lie his head. So if that's true, if that's actually what is true about Jesus, then there's something about hospitality that we need to grasp, because it's not only about our home, but it, it impacts and is crucial to all of our spaces. So the question then is, why are these spaces important? Why are our spaces important? So we're in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. So a little bit of context this morning. Uh, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've made a decision to walk by faith with Him. If your identity is grounded in Him for forgiveness as you are called God's child, all of this is true about you, then your function in the world has fundamentally shifted from what it used to be. Because your life is not your own, your life was now bought with a price. Jesus extended God's gift of welcome and hospitality to you, but that doesn't just end in itself. You were offered something when you, when you actually deserved something far different. Like what you earned was way far off from what you were given in Jesus. And so Jesus says, follow me as a result. So, so you had earned God's rejection because you tend to love creation more than its creator. And so Jesus extended to you the offer of acceptance with God through his broken body. You had earned God's wrath because you often try to put yourself in God's place and say for yourself what is good and right, but Jesus extended God's favor to you through his shed blood. You had earned death because you have fallen short of God's standard of obedience, but Jesus extended to you the offer of life with God by dying in your place. So you decided to follow Jesus, right? That's the, the assumption we're sitting in here this morning. A lot of us, we've decided to, to follow Jesus, and God welcomed us not because of anything that we've done or earned or will do, but because of what Jesus did. So our, our identity is fundamentally changed, which means so much for how we function in this world and what we do. Like the nature of our acceptance with our Creator who loves us and, and calls us His children, it fundamentally shifts our purpose in this world. And if it shifts our purpose in this world, then it shifts the purpose of our spaces. So, First Peter 2, 9-10 to says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you may remember that, that uh, last year, really kind of about this time, we were going through the book of 1 Peter. 
uh, as a church together, and as we walked through the book of 1 Peter, we came up across this passage. We actually dealt with this passage almost a year ago now. Um, and so, with that being said, we're not going to look at everything that this passage has to say, uh, but we're going to look at one really specific thing about what it has to say. It calls us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. So, so if that's the case, one of the ways, like our new function in the world, the way that we exist in our spaces, one of the ways that Peter wants to describe this is uh, that, that of a priesthood. So the implication then, if, if we are a priesthood, if, if people, the, the church are a priesthood, what that means is that every follower of Jesus is what? A priest. That's right. We are priests. So, so if that's true, if we are priests, then what is a priest? Like what in the world is a priest? Because we are reliant on cultural realities to inform these things, and we might not be really clear about what a priest is, so I want to help us define that and so we can figure out what our function should be. So what is a priest? A priest, very simply put, is someone who helps people meet with God. Every per- So what that means for us is that if all of us are priests, we are all people who help people meet with God. Like, pure and simply, that's what this means. So, uh, so to kind of expand on this a little more, uh, priests in the ancient Near East, when you wanted a deity's attention, when you wanted uh, to get a, a deity's attention or focus or uh, influence in your life, then what you did is you went to a priest of that deity. And then what would happen is that priest would perform some kind of ritual or help you perform some kind of ritual in order to get the attention of that deity. Okay, so that was ancient Near Eastern priests, but then Old Testament Israelite priests completely changed the game. And and so what Israelites, they were working from this place where they already had the attention and favor of God. But but the priests, they, they now had a new function where they actually... They helped people relate to God. Like without Old Testament priests, nobody in the nation of Israel would actually be able to relate to God. You had to come to them in the temple, which, by the way, was the place where God's presence was. So, so when you came to the temple, you came to the priest. The priest was helping you meet with God. And so they helped you determine the right sacrifice that you might have to perform for the various things in your life. They, they oversaw all the procedures of all the kinds of sacrifices. They did everything that they could to help you figure out how to relate to God. They performed the atonement sacrifices. The fact that like you could even be forgiven with God was done through priests. And so when pre- Peter, he, he says a royal priesthood, he's telling Christians part of their function in the world He's saying, you know what, you have met with God, and you have been joyfully welcomed as a child of God, uh, uh, one into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. And so we have this really unique privilege of knowing our Creator and relating to our Creator, and that privilege does not just end in itself. It moves in a direction. Now we actually, like he's saying, you people who have been saved by Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. You are the people that help the rest of the world meet and relate to God, every single one of you. So when I talk about uh, concepts of 
like when we go and, and step into situations where we're to be hospitable and we want to see Jesus extend his hospitality through us. Or when, when I'm talking about us being people who carry God's presence with us out into the world, I'm really talking about this occupation that Peter has given to us, this kind of new job description that we help people meet with God. So if this is our um, new function, so to speak, if this is what we are supposed to do, if this is what we're called to, that has implications for every single one of the spaces that we live in. Like now, so, so now, because we are priests, every space that we inhabit is a space where people can meet with the creator of the universe. Every place we go is a space where somebody can meet with God. There is, in fact, no space that we go into that would be off limits. All of our spaces now have value that goes beyond simply what they perceive. They have value for what they are because we are in them. And because every space where you, the individual Christian, go is a space into which you have carried the presence of the living God. So your space is valuable because as you go into that space, you are carrying God's presence with you. So what does this mean for our first spaces? So, uh, so I'm going to borrow a little bit from a book. Uh, this book is called um, The Art of Neighboring. And The Art of Neighboring, uh, I, uh, Jay Potlock, I think is, a, is his name. Um, in The Art of Neighboring, he deals with the concept of the literal command to love your neighbors. If you live in a home, you have a bunch of neighbors surrounding you. So what does this mean? Uh, what are the implications of you being a priest for the space that your home is in? It means that, that your home actually exists, whether it's an apartment or a house or whatever it might be, your home exists in the middle of a series of homes. In fact, there are a total of eight homes that surround your home. Now, maybe you live in an apartment. That isn't uh, perhaps totally true. Maybe you live in a hallway or something like that, and this would change. Uh, But if you live in any kind of single-family home, there are a series of, uh, of homes that surround your home, which means that if you are in this first space that you call home, there are spheres of relationships here that God has sent you into. You're going into this space. So let's, like, let's deal with the implications of this uh, really fast. How many of these names do you know? How many, how many kids do you know? How many activities do you know that they're involved in? Uh, uh, how, how much are you aware of their lives, right? I'm not calling you out, by the way, because I could tell you, like, uh, I could tell you one name in this house. I could tell you the four names in this house. I could tell you three in this one, two in this one, but that's it. That's all I got. Like, there are a bunch here that I don't know, but there's an implication of this for me. If I am a priest and I am being sent into a space, right, I carry God's presence with me, then what that means is that I I actually am extending God's desire to draw people into the midst of this space because I, God's priest, live there. People can now meet with God in this place. Okay, what does this mean for our second space? Well, wherever you work is like kind of like a temple now because you have carried God's presence with you into that space. And that space, what that means 
if you're carrying God's presence with you, is that there is great potential for God to meet with people because you're there. Okay, so, so let's be honest. Uh, a number of us have been so shaped by American culture that we right now are not taking ownership of our spaces because our spaces have, their, their value has been determined by what comes after them. Because we're aiming at the next thing, and so we never take time to value the thing for what it is, but the reality is, is that space is valuable because there are people made in the image of God who God wants to invite to himself that live in each of those three spaces for every single one of us. So, so we then, we neglect the call to intentionally live as priests in those space, and what that means is that we neglect the call to extend God's presence and hospitality, and so we need to take ownership of these spaces for what they are. So, uh, so here's a verse, 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. It says this, it says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. That is my rule in all the churches. Now, uh, if you're talking about like the way people typically look at this verse is they think of it like, I, I know that God is calling me to be in this profession. Or I, I feel that God is calling me to be this kind of person. But actually, that's not the way that he's using the word calling here. The way that he's using the word calling is he's saying, you were called to faith. You were called to salvation in a particular place. So live in that particular place. Don't get focused on where you might go ahead of time, but take ownership of that place in the here and now for what God wants to do. It's actually a command that Christians would, instead of like looking at and working for some other desired lot in life, because that's where this, this happens, right in the middle of him talking about the various kinds of lots that people might desire. Instead of working for something like that, it's that Christians would start living faithfully before God where they are. It's a call to Christians to own their spaces and find ways to love God and love others where they are right now. So, so let's talk about the implications of that further. So, so we're all sent into our spaces. We are all priests, and we all have, like, ownership to take there. Okay, so uh, I need to erase. This has implications for even how we think about our influence as a church. So, um, so let's, this is how we typically think of Christian influence, right? So, um, church, church is a house with a cross on it, so there we go. We typically think of the influence of our church in that um, it, it has a kind of a smaller influence here, and then what we would do is that we would draw people in, and as we draw people in, then what happens is that our influence gets bigger and bigger and bigger as people come in. That's how we typically think of the influence of church, right? I would actually suggest to you something different for how our church's influence should work and actually how Peter envisions the influence of churches working. Instead of us making a bigger impact from one central location, when Peter calls them all priests, every single one of you is priests, his vision actually is that uh, this person would get sent out here, and then they have uh, a first space that's about this big, 
and they have a second space that's about this big, and then they have a third space that's about this big. And then this person, this priest, gets sent out here into this space. So they have a first space about this big, and then they have a really big second space in their workplace. They have some third spaces that are sprinkled around here. And then this person gets sent out here to their first space and their second space and their third space and so on and so forth. And so what you have is people carrying the presence of God into the various spaces that they're called to go, that they already live. Like, it's not that we keep drawing people in and our influence keeps growing. Now, there's a reality that because there are a lot of Christians that gather together in this building on a Sunday morning and we try to work together to do things, there is a certain level of growing influence that comes from this point. But that is not the primary expression of the church's influence in the world. The primary expression is is priests getting sent out to be priests in their spaces and spheres of influence. So, okay. Okay. That's, uh, I'm done with the whiteboard this morning. Uh, so then, uh, Jesus, he said to his disciples, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So the translation is, guys, there are a lot of spaces that don't have any priests in them yet. There are a lot of spaces that don't have any priests in them yet. And so in our case, there are a lot of, uh, in fact, in our, our American culture's case, there are a lot of spaces that have priests in them, but they aren't taking responsibility for the fact that they're priests in those spaces. So there are some Christians who, who read this verse and, uh, about, hey, the harvest is plentiful, but, but the workers are few, and they read this verse and they think, uh, ah, gosh, I'm really glad that there are pastors and missionaries out there to go and, uh, and take care of the harvest, right? And, and the reality is, every time Jesus saves a person, that there is an entirely new set of spaces that the influence of the church has opened access to because that person is saved. Like every time somebody gets added to the church, there's a whole new realm of influence that opens up because there is a person that now exists in spaces that were previously untouched. So when Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful, but the the, the labors are few, he's like, I don't have very many followers, but every time I get a follower, it it just opens up the category for the the number of people that could be drawn to me. Okay, so our question was, why why are our spaces important? And, and, and we've kind of examined that, the, the impact of our spaces, the importance of our spaces, how it actually like multiplies the influence beyond what we could do in one building because it moves us all out into our spheres of influence. So the answer to that question, and uh, so we asked why they're important, but now we're asking, what do we do with our spaces? Like, now that we understand their importance, what do we actually do with that reality? And the answer to that question, and our main point this morning, is this. That we need to steward every space like God plans to meet someone there. We need to take responsibility for every space like God plans to meet someone there. Okay, so what does that mean for us? So what? Um, I just lost my that's all right. Uh, I have a series of questions to ask us this morning. So what, um, if you could, Nick, go ahead of me, run ahead of me here a little bit. So I want to call us to intentionally 
and creatively start extending hospitality into our spaces. So as we go into our spaces, we have this responsibility now to intentionally and creatively start extending hospitality. You want me to tell you what that looks like, and here's the reality. I can't do that because I don't live in your spaces. Like, I don't, you know your spaces, and you know those relationships, and you know those people far better than I do, which means that you're actually the most equipped person to determine how to influence those spaces, how to be a priest in those spaces. So, instead of giving you any answers, I'm going to ask about seven questions. So, my first question is this. Uh, Sorry, go back to that previous question. There we go. Is there a way to get involved in your neighbor's events before you invite them to your events. So um, friendship, the way that friendship works is it's a two-sided thing, right? So, uh, So you get involved in somebody else's life, they're involved a little bit in your life. If all you're doing is inviting your neighbor to come to your things, but you find that they're not responsive, maybe the first step that you need to take is actually like go to some of their things, be interested in their interests, engage them on that level. So That's a question for you to consider. Is there a way to get involved in your neighbor's events before you invite them to yours? Uh, You might want to write these, uh, sorry, sorry, you might want to write these questions down because as we think about how do we engage our spaces, these are questions that we have to deal with in terms of hospitality. So, all right, that's the first one. Second one, are there simple ways to perform unusual acts of kindness toward your neighbor's? So what is an unusual act of kindness? Well, it could be something as simple as like writing a note to somebody. A handwritten note is a very unusual act of kindness today. If you could do that for, like, imagine doing that, learning the names of the eight neighbors and some of their interests and that kind of stuff, and then just imagine, like, writing a note to one per week, which it doesn't take that much time for you, but what, what impact of hospitality would that have on those eight neighbors that's around your house? Yeah, absolutely. Restoring hope. Thank you, Karen. That's like so, yeah, we are restoring hope because people, we are divided in our culture, in our country with so many things. People want to see that somebody is willing to exit isolation and actually connect with them. So, okay, so that's uh, that one. What's the next one? Are there any neighbors you have right now that would sit down for dinner? And maybe if not dinner, how about coffee? If you don't have anybody who would do that, that it would be too uncomfortable or that sort of thing, and I understand, you have to evaluate. Is this going to like make this person prickly towards me, or are they actually going to like feel welcomed in? So if you have nobody who fits into any of those categories, one of your goals should be like, okay, how do I help them maybe progress to where they would be willing to, to do that? How do I build a friendship with them uh, prior to them coming over for dinner or that kind of stuff? Uh, next one. Can you create a social event to help other Christians build relationships with your neighbors. So maybe this is like a barbecue that you throw in your neighborhood. Uh, Maybe this is, I don't know, you play poker with your neighbors. Like it could be any series of things, but but, uh, create a social event that, that would help other Christians to build relationships with your neighbors. Let me tell you why this is important. Because something that people would typically not believe progressively becomes more and more believable the more people around you that you see actually believe it. So, so if you see a number, maybe you only have one Christian in your sphere of influence, and then 
you're like, oh, that Christian thing, that's just a bunch of crazy people. But then if you have like three Christians in your sphere of influence, well, it becomes less crazy. If you have 10 Christians in your sphere of influence, it starts actually to become a plausible thing because you see more than one person actually believes this. Uh, okay, so social event, next one. Is there a specific need in one of your spaces that you can help meet? And is there a way you can get your church to help you too? So here's the amazing thing. Like, we don't just do this by ourselves, but we have now Christians who are interested in us being priests in our spheres of influence who actually want to help us. So as you think about the needs that arise, is there maybe a way that your church could come alongside somebody that you are intentionally trying to reach and be hospitable towards? Is there a specific need that you can meet? Uh, Here's another one. Is there a new third space? that you can start interacting with to extend God's influence through you. Now, Andrea doesn't know that this is her third space yet, but she is getting ready this week to go. Uh, Autumn is taking a, a, a few weeks of swimming lessons, right? And so that's like that has opened itself up as a, a potential third space, maybe build some relationships in the community and that kind of stuff while keeping your COVID distance and all of that totally. Uh, but that's like, is there a new third space? So maybe you feel like, man, as I think about my family and as I think about my home and even my neighbors, I just feel like relationally I've tapped all of those spaces out. Like the harvest is not plentiful anymore in those spaces. Maybe that's the way you feel. Well, if you find yourself running into that, maybe it's time actually to consider a new third space that you might step into to see God's hospitality extended towards people. Uh, Next question. So I've talked about all of that and we live in a pandemic right now right? It's very hard to build relationships with people in the midst of this craziness that we live in. So, so in light of COVID-19, because I understand that, that we may not actually be able to take a bunch of steps right now to go and build those relationships. So in light of COVID-19, I have two questions. The first one is this, how can you take the established relationships you have right now and make them go deeper? So uh, maybe that's a phone call, maybe that's writing notes, maybe that's uh, baking cookies for people, right? These like simple acts of kindness. But but what I've noticed about COVID-19 is that it has, um, it's taken away the expansiveness of our ability to influence, but because it's taken away that, it's actually given us a lot more time to go deeper with a few people, right? So like just say Crossroads, for example. Crossroads, we used to have access with 75 kids. 75 kids between two schools. We had a lot of influence, of wide influence. Well, then COVID-19 hit and we didn't know what to do. So we started an e-learning center. And now instead of one hour a week in 75 kids' lives, we get 12 hours a week in about 20 kids' lives. So, so there's an opportunity for us to go much deeper with the few relationships that we are able to maintain right now. So how can you take the established relationships you have right now and help them go deeper? And then the, the last question is this. In light of COVID, is there a harmless way to check on or extend concern for your neighbors? So maybe it's really like you write on a piece of paper, is there anything I can help with? and you step about eight feet back from the door, and you hold it up and say, hi, I just want to know if I can help. Now, maybe that's like a little too far for some of you, and I totally understand, but, but the idea is that people actually want to know that people care for them right now, 
We're in the midst of a lot of isolation right now, and so finding ways to connect could be really, really helpful. Okay, so that is everything in terms of the questions that you might ask. The goal being that when we see what God wants to do in our spheres of influence, when we actually understand that God has He's called us to welcome people into this relationship with himself that we actually get to enjoy. That we actually can, we can help to, people are in the midst of hopelessness right now for our society and different things that we actually can help to restore hope for people as we seek to be priests. Why would we not do that? So I want to encourage you, like don't, I don't know if this was like a good sermon or not. I don't need it to be any of that. Um, But if it was, don't let it stop there. Like, if what you got out of this morning was, oh, that was kind of cool to think about and good to hear, and I was a little engaged, um, then that's not good enough. Like, what it actually means is that we need to take those questions and think about the lists of people that exist in these spheres and actually apply those questions to those people and do something with it. That might seem really overwhelming to do all of that at one time. I get it. But we have an opportunity. People are in need of hope. And as priests, we have an opportunity to extend hope, which is the most amazing thing that we get to do. Jesus would not just save us, but involve us in his plan of redemption for the world. And that is an amazing thing. So thank you so much, church, for listening. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning, as we just try to understand what it means to be faithful to you, to own our spheres of influence well, to take responsibility for them. Lord, to see the people in each of those spheres as people who, their most basic need is to have a restored relationship with you. Would you help us to think about our primary occupation being as those who would help people meet their creator. And as we do that, we extend your grace and your goodness and, and we love people well in spite of how they respond to us and we share reasons for the, the hope that is in us that are, that are faithful and honoring to you and are consistent with who Jesus is. Lord, as we do all of this, would you be glorified? Lord, and